1: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today, in 1940, 80 years ago today, one of the most infamous aerial attacks of all time. An attack on the British city of Coventry that took place on the night of the 14th of November through to the morning of the 15th of November, 1940. Over 4,000 homes were destroyed. A third of the city's factories were completely destroyed or severely damaged. The other two-thirds suffered damage ranging from slight to bad. Nearly 600 people were killed and over 1,000 badly injured. This was an attack so severe, so dramatic, that it represented a ratcheting up of the bombing of civilian areas by combatants in the Second World War. And indeed, it became a verb, to Coventry, meant to annihilate an enemy town or city. Joining me on the podcast to commemorate the 80th anniversary of this terrible event. I would like to have been in Coventry, but lockdown conditions here in the UK means I can't go. So joining me here on the podcast to do a virtual commemoration of this event is the historian and Coventry resident David McCrory. You'll hear that his father and mother were caught up in the bombing, and he's got a comprehensive knowledge of what went on that night, both on the military side, but also the impact for civilians living in and near Coventry itself. If you want to go and watch our documentary that we filmed a few months ago, just before lockdown began, uh, you can go to History Hit TV. We've got the Firebombing of Coventry documentary. It's one of many documentaries on our new TV station, History Hit TV. You'd use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. And it's a great honour to make films like this that other broadcasters just aren't making any more commemorating one of the saddest nights in British history. In the meantime, everyone, here's David McGrory. Enjoy. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Explain to me what Coventry was like in 1939-1940. Coventry was
0: busy. It was an industrial city. Loads of factories, building most of the cars. It was becoming one of the richest cities in the country, mainly through its industries and that. So you had this massive sort of industrial base in the city, mainly car factories and that, but lots of engineering works and places like that, like Alfred Herbert's and that, which which was a world firm. It was a busy place, a lot of people.
1: And there was a beautiful medieval city centre as well.
0: Yeah. Comtree was said it was one of the best um, preserved medieval cities in Europe, basically. And when you actually look at some of the older pictures, there were the streets, it was absolutely chock a block full of timbered houses and that. But they started to make inroads into that in, from sort of 1930 onward, where, like in 1936, they knocked down Butcher Road, which was an absolutely beautiful medieval street going down the hillside. And they just knocked that down for easier access for the motor car into Broadgate, because they'd already got plans before the war to um, rebuild. They took on Gibson back in the designer back in 1935-36. He was looking to, um, with the council, looking to change everything. They had plans to knock half the city down, basically, even before the war.
1: Yeah, an important reminder that we can't blame the Luftwaffe for the reshaping and, and ruination of Britain's medieval architectural heritage. But was it an important place for the war effort, David? Oh, yeah, yeah, without doubt,
0: because it was. It's like I say, because the actual um, the amount of industry in the city... It's like when the war broke out, they're they're instantly changing everything into war production. They're producing bombers. The first, the Whitley bomber, of course, was was built in country at Armstrong Whitworth, just outside Whitley and Bangington. That was the first major sort of workhorse of the RAF from about 1936. And it was used in those sort of early periods of the war, but fell out of use by that time and was used later on, mainly for dropping uh, propaganda and parachutists and things like that down. But initially, of course, it was the RAFs. Main bomber, but of course, when that was superseded by Lancasters, Manchesters and all sorts, and all those were built in country as well and mosquitoes there was thousands of mosquito bombers built by the standard and stuff for spitfires, parts you know firing mechanisms, wheels built by the Dunlop for bombers uh, for spitfires, firing mechanisms for spitfires, military vehicles, anything, everything you think of
1: basically and tell me about this week. 80 years ago. Do we know why the Germans singled out Coventry for this gigantic assault? What happened effectively was Hitler was giving a speech at the birthplace
0: of the Nazi party, effectively, in Munich. And uh, the RAF actually bombed them. And Hitler had to be bundled off into, I don't know, into a cellar or sort of bunker or something to get out of the way. And, uh, of course, he was really annoyed about this. We know this because of the Nuremberg War Trials from what Goering said. And Hitler wanted retribution, effectively. And he suggested that they hit London. This is what Hitler wanted to hit London back. But Goering said, there's no point in hitting London. You hit London and you it gets lost. It's such a big city. It gets lost. And if Goering suggested that they hit Coventry because it's all within a, a tight centre. And you can, in that way, you can actually literally burn it out, create a firestorm and burn the city out. So it was actually Goering's idea and that came out of the uh, the war trials, basically. That's what he actually said. So we do know why they did it. They didn't do it purely because of industry and that. And it became a double whammy because they could hit industry. But only that night, they, they hit 35 factories, basically. But... The actual um, directions for the attack says that all of the city is a target. Although they did single out an odd factory, all of the city by the German directive was the hit, was the target.
1: Tell me about that raid that began on the 14th of November, 1940. It started off, of course, in, in
0: France and that. It was at Vannes with the Pathfinder Squadron. That was sent over first. Thing was, uh, that day as well, Vans and about 24 other German bases were bombed because they knew there was going to be an attack in England, but they didn't know exactly where it was. They thought it was going to be on London and it was go over as far as Gravesend and places. And they sent over, they started Operation Coldwater and hit at least 24 German bases and radar stations, including Vans, which is the Pathfinder Squadron's base. And uh, despite that, of course, it still went ahead. There's a sort of mix of numbers. Strangely, the Germans didn't seem to have. Um, keep a proper amount of numbers on this, which is usually they're pretty good at numbers. They keep their numbers, but on this, they, they don't. They never seem to be sure, and it's between 400, 400, 500 bombers. But they sort of started the evening by sending off Kangaroo for 100, which was following what they call the X gerat system, which is basically a single beam. They're following a single beam, which was at the time directed over Coventry. Then you get two intercepting beams that are sent from different places that intercept the single beam. If you're following that beam, when you saw sort of start to leave it, of course, it starts to break up. So you get in it again. So you always follow the beam. So when you reach the first cross beam, it actually starts off. It t- it's telling you you're nearing the target. Then the second beam is crossed, and that is supposed to, they said at the time, that it's supposed to have started these crewed onboard computers to start the actual bombing raid on these Pathfinders, they had these sort of crude computers and so on. And that actually started the bomber. So they followed this system, this basically over country. And the first ones over country, they, for the, the Pathfinders, there was about 13 of them, but they were actually carrying about 10,000 incendiaries and about 200 bombs. And also, of course, loads of flares as well, like great bloody, like, <laughs> like chandeliers, basically. Dropping into the sky. People always remember these flares dropping like chandeliers. So the Pathfinders are coming over the city just after seven o'clock. They start coming over the city and uh, with that funny droning that German planes make, they have this sort of broken sound that they make. It's uh, in and out, Mm like that. And then, of course, the flares are dropped and they're all like, say, described like chandeliers in the sky. People saying, a lot not huge chandeliers in the sky, basically. And amongst the, f- the flares are incendiaries start falling at the odd bombs. And this group is coming over for the first hour, basically, and starting to set the target. They're actually, they're laying the target. Start off your fires, basically. So when all the other ones are going to come over, which is soon after, which is literally 20, within 20 minutes of the last pathfinder coming over, The other groups of bombers came over. You had Dorniers and all sorts of stuff, Junkers. They all followed in in waves. Literally about every 15 to 20 minutes, there'd be about 20 planes crossing in different directions. They were crisscrossing over the city, sort of lacing it with bombs and incendiaries. And, of course, that was the first time they used the uh, exploding incendiary as well during that raid, which, of course, caught a lot of people out because people had been shown how to deal with normal incendiary bombs which don't blow up in your face. People were told just to put a sandbag. Go with a sandbag and drop it on the incendiary. And afterwards, they realised that these things can flare up in your face. So they told you to go with a sandbag in front of your face and drop it on the ball. But to be quite honest, you'd have a job doing that anyway because they were quite. They would send all phosphorus in the air all over the place. So you've had these sort of uh, first group comes over. They lay the target within probably... Three quarters of an hour, you've got over 300 incidents. The fire station is being sort of overwhelmed with calls and that. There's over 300 incidents going on. Then uh, within the hour, you've literally got it's one incident. Half you know, The city is on fire everywhere, effectively. The firemen get out and they get into the streets. They end up having to call in firemen from all over the areas, districts. But the problem was the city has been blown to pieces and burning. That is leading more bombers because then the bombers that came over afterwards, they could literally cross the channel and you could see, this is what they said, you could see the light crossing the channel and all you had to do was follow that light and head to it. They could see their target, effectively. But I say, the firemen were getting out into the streets, bombs going everywhere. They're setting up hoses all over the place. It's Dante's Inferno, effectively. The Vicar of Holy Trinity church described it as Dante's Inferno. Every time they managed to set up something, Another bomb hits, the water supply goes, or the pipes get blown to pieces. And, of course, they get killed as well. There's a lot of firemen killed as well. But um, it's like when the cathedral started. The cathedral, basically, you you had the fire watch there. They were there at 7 o'clock, including the vicar and that, the stonemason, Jock Forbes. What was happening was, effectively, these incendiaries would drop, always swishing down. They swish as they fall. And they drop, and they just punch a hole straight through the lead, the roof. St. Michael's had like uh, the outer roof, then you had an 18-inch gap between the inner roof. So what they would do, they would punch through the lead of the roof, fall inside and roll down inside. So if you were trying to find an incendiary in the roof, you're looking for a hole with smoke coming out of it effectively, and that incendiary is rolled down to the end. So it's not exactly where the hole is either. So they're busy ripping up the roof on one side, trying to control it. They've only got sand and what water they've actually stored up there. Some incendiaries had taken hold of the Girdler's Chapel. And, of course, they tried to deal with that as well afterwards. And it it just got out of hand and they couldn't deal with it. There was too many coming over. And the the smoke was starting to pour up the staircase to the roof, which was obviously showing that their exit was cut off. So they had to sort of climb off down a set of ladders to get off the roof. And uh, within a short time, fire crew arrived. And they said that the lead off the roof, it was pouring off the roof, like a river, the lead, basically. They'd play the hoses on it for a very short time. And, of course, the water dies again. No water. So it had to be left to his fate, effectively. They couldn't do anything. They went in to save what they could. And that was the end of it. The whole building just went up in flames. They, they said there were 60, 70-foot-high flames, bronze flames, roaring up into the sky and at a certain time. It sounded like there was an earthquake because what had happened back in the 1880s when they'd restored the roof, they put these massive um, iron bands across the church to brace it effectively. And when the building was burning, the roof was burning, it was twisting these bands and it literally pulled the whole thing in with the actual main pillars. So it just fell in and it's, the people within the area said it sounded like it was an earthquake as the actual church collapsed in on itself,
1: yeah. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. What about normal civilians? Were there bomb shelters in Coventry? So there was a programme in in
0: 1938 of uh, building bomb shelters around the city initially probably about 40 40 50 bomb shelters you know small capacities up to about five six hundred capacity shelters and they built them around the city some of the original shelters were a bit like trenches really and of course later on they realized that these weren't strong enough and lined them in concrete people were literally moving from one shelter to another because you know the raid was going on and it was 11 hours constant bombing effectively and And sometimes it was getting dangerous. The the bomb shelter on Greyfriars Green, that was about 300 capacity. They had a time when they'd got an unexploded bomb outside the entrance and and it was flooded, starting to flood. And the boiler in there was in danger of exploding as well. It's quite unbelievable, really. And all the time outside, all they can hear and feel are these bombs coming down and the ground shaking and everything. It's been absolutely terrifying, really. Well, they got through it. Well, some did, of course.
1: What about the RAF? Was there any way of breaking up these raids? The night fighters were out. Only a couple of them actually said
0: they saw anything. One German said he had a night fighter on his tail over country and he had to almost go vertical to avoid it. But of course, the problem was with night fighters up to that point, they hadn't fixed the radar properly. The radar on the night fighter is being shot out from the front of the plane, effectively, but it couldn't um, zero in on anything because it didn't have a triangle, which was later added. And the actual night fighters, uh, effectively up until November the 19th, were propaganda because it was something to tell people that we were doing something. We got planes up there trying, but as the night fighter guys themselves said, when you're up there, you couldn't see these things. There could be a couple of hundred planes there, but you can't see them. And the first hit... Of a night fighter was on November the nineteenth over Birmingham, and the pilot said, "My God, there is something up there." <laughs> yeah, what happened effectively with them was they talk about getting to certain times of the night of course when they actually seem to run out of ammo, and some of them were they literally run out of ammo, but other ones they said. I always remember a chap told me that his dad uh, picked up a couple of guys from one of these uh, anti-aircraft sites. On the night, and he asked him about how can we stop firing, and he says uh, he couldn't effectively pick up the shells. He says none of us had the strength to ram another shell into the gun effectively, because you know they're just at it, bang, 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 like this, and they were just too tired to lift the shells up. But other sort of uh, crews just ran out of shells. But uh, you had other silly things around the city, In Memorial Park. There was a rocket launcher, which were absolutely useless things. They looked good. They look quite impressive, you know, because a lot of sparks and stuff. But absolutely
1: useless for taking planes out of the air. What was left in Coventry? What had been destroyed, and what were the casualties?
0: The last bombs were dropped at about six twenty in the morning. There was a bunch of uh, about four or five two hundred pounders came down, and that was the sort of end of it. Long say just non stop all night. Then the people sort of came out, and the, the city centre was just devastated, effectively all the main centre of the city. There was a chap called Smith who was, who was a town clerk who had also written a history of the city, and he was a fire watcher. And he said that morning he left the council house amid all this devastation. Because it was quite, it wasn't clear, it was, it was all smoke and there was dust in the air, floating in the air, gas, plaster dust, everything. It was like a mist. And it was, it was drizzling as well by that time. And he said, amongst all this devastation, I always remember this one. He says, I heard a Stalin singing which gave me hope for the future. And that's quite a lovely little sort of thing. Something that my dad went out the next day and wandered around the rooms. He ended up pulling an incendiary bomb from between two walls <laughs> and took it home with him. <laughs> well, in fact, my dad was blown up by a landmine that night. He was just going home and he actually popped into the Radford pub to have a half. He wasn't really a drinker, but he just had a half of Mackeyson something. and something. And he popped in there when the raid started. And they all went in the cellar, and he never used to really bother going into the shelters. So uh, after a while, he went back out, and he and he stood outside the, the pub watching all the bombers going over and the bombs going off and of that. And then he suddenly saw over the church opposite. He suddenly saw this parachute coming down, and he thought a jerry had bailed out. and he was just said he'd just seen about going after it, and he realized it was a big canister attached to it, and of course it was a landmine, wasn't it? parachute one it came down above the church and just blew and of course those things just blow and they blow down and outwards they flatten things dad was blown off his feet blown unconscious the church was blown down to its first course of stones effectively when dad came to he actually went over to the church and pulling the rocks away because he knew there was people underneath so he spent the actual night during all the bombing helping well, dragging people out from underneath the church. There was about two dead, I think. He dragged them and they stopped a car. And between him and this other chap, they ferried them backwards and forwards to uh, this relief station during all the bombing, dodging around all the holes in the road and everything, basically. Yeah, so we had a busy night.
1: (laughs) How is the bombing remembered today by the
0: people of Coventry? It's always remembered because, to be quite honest, it's part of the city's... It's not just part of its history. It's part of what the city is now. Coventry is what it is now because of what happened that night. The city looks like what it is now because of what happened that night. Do you know what I mean? It changed the city. It was, like, it was almost as if it was the death of old Coventry and the beginning of, of a new version of Coventry.
1: Did your dad ever forget that night?
0: Dad was in 41 Commando. He saw a lot of uh, action. He was on Salerno. He was on Sword Beach. and He, was, he even got um, machine gunned by a Stuka bomber one time. He never really talked much about it, to be honest. I just, it's one of those things you sort of always think about. Though I did talk to him about it, I didn't talk enough about it. We should always talk more to our parents to find out these sort of details because they just go—they disappear with them. Dad never even claimed his medals in the end because he says, well, I was only doing what
1: had to be done effectively. So I
0: don't see the point in medals.
1: David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What is your book called?
0: Oh, that one is Coventry's Blitz, that one is. I did one, Coventry at War, and there's Coventry Blitz as well, Coventry's
1: Blitz. Anything you want about Coventry, people? Go to David McGrory. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this very special week. Great. Right, cheers, Dan. The Hi, buddy. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small, windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol channel called Landy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favor to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five star rating, if you could share it if you could give it a review. I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com/subscribe as a special gift you can also get your first 3 months for just 1 pound a month when you use code dan snow at checkout